0: This is Bloomberg Law
1: with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
0: Now, have any of you guys ever seen one of these bad things for real? We burned almost every physical book in the country. So by the time you guys grow up, there won't be one book left. Burn it. Did firemen used to put out fires? That's a classic lie want to know why we burn. We are not born equal. We must be made equal by the fire. And then we can be
1: happy. Fahrenheit 451. 451 for the temperature at which book paper catches fire and burns. The movie is based on the dystopian novel by Ray Bradbury depicting a society where books are outlawed and firemen burn every book they find. It may not be as severe as burning, but there's been a dramatic escalation in the banning of books, and it seems to reflect culture war issues. Book challenges doubled from 2020 to 2021, according to the American Library Association. The majority of banned books focus on sexual orientation, gender identity, race and racism. One Texas school district is getting ready for the start of school by removing 41 books from school library shelves, including Gender Queer by Maya Kobabe, one of the most challenged books of last year. My guest is Deborah Caldwell-Stone, director of the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom.
2: Why do you think
1: book bans are on the rise?
2: I think because a number of events have come together. One is the apparent success of Glenn Youngkin in his gubernatorial campaign, leveraging a parent's complaint about a school book in Virginia to apparently draw voters and win that election. But I also think that there is an organized effort to attack education more broadly, and that books have become part of that campaign. We're seeing groups that call themselves Parents' Rights Groups, Moms for Liberty, No left turn in education, parents defending education, activate local members, local chapters to attend school board meetings, library board meetings, and demand the removal of books and being very successful.
1: The reasons for challenging books change over the years. Between 2000 and 2009, the Harry Potter series was frequently challenged because of allegedly promoting witchcraft and wizardry. What do the challenges now mainly focus on?
2: What we've observed since 2015 is the majority of books challenged in schools and libraries. That's when someone demands that they be removed from the library shelf. are books centering the lives and experiences of LGBTQIA persons. And this includes... Things like picture books that simply depict a family headed by a same-sex couple, ranging to young adult materials dealing with coming-of-age stories, romance, or nonfiction books dealing with sex education. The other trend that we're observing, and this is tied to the current campaign around critical race theory or the claim that critical race theory is being taught in K-12 through schools, is a real effort to remove books reflecting the experience of African Americans or reflecting a perspective on history by African Americans who challenge some of the traditional narratives about racism and U.S. history and their experience of slavery. And and so what we're seeing is a focus on removing books that challenge the traditional narratives that elevates the lives and the voices of persons who've been traditionally excluded from society, but now have found a voice. I think we've reached a kind of consensus here in the United States. Books written for adults and intended for adult audiences rarely see challenges. It never really becomes an issue. The real dispute is about books that are available to young people. And there has been a successful effort by a number of groups who style themselves parents' rights groups to make this an issue about challenging their authority to raise their children, when in fact the end result has been to eliminate books that speak to the experiences of others in society who do not share their moral or political views. Looking at the
1: states, Texas had the most bans, followed by Pennsylvania, Florida, and Oklahoma. Does book banning happen on both sides of the political spectrum? Because we mostly hear about it on what I'd call the conservative side.
2: Certainly, book challenges do come from persons from all parts of the political spectrum. And we've seen challenges to books that use racial epithets from individuals and parents who believe that no young person should be exposed to things like the n-word and so i know that there's been a few school districts that have at least eliminated from the curriculum books like huckleberry finn and even to kill a mockingbird or they've moved those books up to the high school level, and they're teaching them at the high school level rather than the middle school level. And there have been efforts to remove books that deal with gun violence. So you're absolutely correct that challenges can come from all parts of the political spectrum. But what we're seeing right now is really this coordinated effort by a number of conservative advocacy organizations to target the kinds of narratives that challenge their authority, that suggest that there's a place for individuals who are not like them in society, essentially silencing the voices of gay, queer, transgender people, African Americans who offer a more honest perspective on their experiences of racism here in American society.
1: The only school library case to have been decided by the Supreme Court was 40 years ago, Island Tree School District v. Pico. Tell us about that case.
2: That was a plurality decision where it was determined that first school board had to operate in a way that was consistent with the First Amendment and that indeed students do have First Amendment rights to access books that are provided to them for voluntary reading in the school library. And that the school board could not remove books from the school library simply because they didn't like the ideas, opinions, viewpoints expressed in those books. And the result was guidance that said that, in fact, there is a First Amendment right to read and access ideas in a public library and a public school library. And that removing books because of their content or viewpoint could very well violate the First Amendment rights of the users who were supposed to be able to read them. And so we've seen a number of lower court decisions drawing on that authority that, for example, found that putting Harry Potter on a restricted shelf and requiring written parental permission to access Harry Potter in the school library did indeed violate the First Amendment rights of the students who are entitled to use the books in that library. In the public library realm, uh, district court determined that when a city council authorized an ordinance that allowed any 300 people to demand that a book be removed from the children's room to a restricted shelf in the adult area. And that was used to target two picture books dealing with families headed by same-sex couples. Heather has two mommies, daddy's roommate. Um, They found that ordinance essentially violated the First Amendment rights, both of the young people who were supposed to be able to browse and read those books, but also the parents who wanted their children to be able to find and read those books in the public library. So the court struck down the ordinance and ordered the books returned to the children's browsing collection. So there's been this defense of the ability of individuals to make their own choices about the reading and the ability of libraries to provide a variety of information needs across the range of beliefs and politics.
1: On August 5th, a judge rejected Missouri students' bid for a preliminary injunction and a suit over school library book removals. His opinion questioned their reliance on the plurality opinion in the Island Trees case. Do you fear a time when Island Trees will no longer be controlling law because it was just a plurality opinion?
2: Well, you know, I would argue that subsequent cases and other decisions throughout the federal court system have upheld the idea that students don't shed the First Amendment right when they enter the schoolhouse gate, to quote another famous case, the Tinker decision. But also, ultimately, I would have faith that courts would recognize that broad censorship of ideas in public school systems that are supposed to be serving the entire community based on particular parents or particular advocacy groups objection to those ideas is the kind of government censorship we don't want our schools engaging in.
1: How would you describe the criteria for banning a book? Is it based mainly on obscenity?
2: A framing that we're hearing from these advocacy groups, that any book touching on topics dealing with gender identity, sexual orientation, that provide information about changing bodies, human reproduction, sexuality are inherently obscene for minors, which of course is an objection based on particular moral or religious beliefs. And that really should have no place in the decision-making about what books are available to young people in schools. And certainly obscenity is the bottom line as far as Determining what is not protected by the First Amendment in those terms. But the court has made it very clear that that's a very narrow category of materials that has no serious value, no educational value. You know, when library professionals, when educational professionals select books for school students, they're selecting them because they do have an educational value, and particularly for voluntary reading in the school library. These books may serve the needs of a particular subset of students, and they're not required reading. So the Streisand effect is something that does occur when a book is challenged or banned, but it doesn't happen to every book. And ultimately, we have to think about those students, those members of the community who don't have access to credit, who don't have regular access to the Internet, who can't travel to alternative bookstores, Public libraries exist to serve those very people and school libraries serve students who have no other information resources. So when we ban a book from a school library, when we ban a book from a public library, we're denying those who have less in society the ability to gain the same access to information and ideas that are enjoyed by those with better income.
1: In Virginia, there's a case where a former state congressman is trying to use this old Virginia law to ban the sale of books to minors. Is this another step because they're attempting to tell places like Barnes and Nobles what they can or can't sell?
2: That's the core here. Um, We have individuals trying to tell us what to think about, what to read about to recruit elected officials and the government in their campaign to limit what we can read, what we can think about, even how we can live our own lives. And the government should not be engaged in that. Uh, That's what the First Amendment is for. This effort to uh, reframe the conversation around gender identity and sexual orientation to somehow define it as inappropriate for any minor, even the oldest of minors, to consider and think about when, in fact, we know that we have many young people um, who are parts of families who have gay or transgender members or who are grappling with these issues themselves, or have friends who are grappling with these issues themselves, uh, is something that the government simply should not be engaged in. And the First Amendment has promised us the freedom to believe as we wish, to think what we wish, to read what we want, to speak as we wish, um, and full freedom of conscience. And what we have here is a campaign to take those rights away, uh, and particularly in regards to the concepts dealing, you know, with the lives and identities of those who have been traditionally marginalized in our society, to limit our consideration to something that was probably acceptable in 1952, but no longer reflects the reality of the society we live in or the people who live in it. It's the antithesis of democracy to tell us what to think and read about, and to argue that our public schools and that our public libraries should only reflect the views of a vocal minority really um, got the very meaning of the First Amendment and its promise of our freedom to read and believe as we wish.
1: I remember when Senator Ted Cruz read from a, a book asking now Justice Katanji Brown Jackson about racist babies. The sales of that book went up. Is that what usually happens when there are attempts to ban books?
2: Yes, we do observe that uh, frequently when a book is challenged or banned, there is increased curiosity. People want to find out what's so salacious, what's so wrong with the book. And so sales do go up. One author, Angie Thomas, who wrote a book for young adults called The Hate U Give, she's actually stated on social media that she has come to appreciate book bans because (laughs) it means that she sells more books. So the Streisand effect is something that does occur when a book is challenged or banned, but it doesn't happen to every book. And ultimately, we have to think about those students, those members of the community who don't have access to credit, who don't have regular access to the Internet, who can't travel to alternative bookstores. Public libraries exist to serve those very people, and school libraries serve students who have no other information resources. So when we ban a book from a school library, when we ban a book from a public library, we're denying those who have less in society the ability to gain the same access to information and ideas that are enjoyed by those with better income.
1: Thanks, Deborah. That's Deborah Caldwell-Stone, director of the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom. The former head of the J.P. Morgan Chase precious metals business and his top gold trader were convicted in Chicago on charges of fraud, spoofing and market manipulation and faced decades in prison. It's a victory for the government in its long crackdown on spoofing in the precious metals market, even though a third defendant, a salesman, was acquitted. Joining me is James Park, a professor at UCLA Law School. His latest book is called The Valuation Treadmill, How Securities Fraud Threatens the Integrity of Public Companies. Two of the defendants were convicted, including the man who was once the most powerful figure in the gold market, but one was acquitted. So is this a victory for federal prosecutors in their crackdown?
3: It is a victory in in my view. The the person who was acquitted was not directly involved in the trade, and so he was a salesperson. So he may have had a stronger defense. And so I think the two convictions, though, are very significant. You know, they send a signal not just with respect to gold markets, but also other markets. And it culminates an extensive effort to crack down on this sort of uh, spoofing and manipulative market activity. And it also shows that prosecutors can bring these cases before a jury. They'll understand it and they're willing to convict in some cases.
1: The jury was out for eight hours. That seems like a lot for this kind of case with the amount of evidence that the prosecution put in.
3: It may be. It really depends on um, the, the context. And, you know, it is you know, a, a case that involved a lot of different transactions, a lot of different, different trading transactions. And, you know, the jury may have been trying to make sure it understood the details of what was being alleged. They certainly were also tasked with uh, deciding the fate of three different individuals. And so uh, I would guess that a significant portion of that time might have been spent on um, the acquitted individual's case, trying to understand what his role was in the transactions and whether or not he'd be uh, potentially guilty.
1: So the government tried racketeering charges here, which are normally used in mob cases or gang cases. Prosecutors alleged the precious metals business at J.P. Morgan was run as a criminal enterprise. But it didn't work. The jury didn't buy that. They acquitted all three on racketeering.
3: It's interesting. You know, we think of RICO and racketeering as being um, the sort of charges you level against the mafia for very serious types of crimes. Having said that, the statute does include fraud, and fraud can include spoofing and other manipulative activities. But I think what they were trying to say is that they believed that the evidence only supported that The spoofing was really the responsibility of the individuals involved in those activities as as opposed to the desk as a whole, that you couldn't say that the desk was acting in a coordinated manner to engage in criminal activity, and that some of this activity may not have been completely obvious to everyone on the desk, that some members of the desk may not have understood that this was a systemic a repeated practice that was going on over many years. And if that's the case, then you can only really blame the individuals who executed the spoofing trades as opposed to the desk as an enterprise. So I think that's a reasonable conclusion. And at the same time, you can see why the government may have felt it was appropriate to advance a theory like this. You know, you're going after the head of the desk not a low-level employee, and so if you think that the head of the desk is involved in this uh, activity, then surely, you know, there's an argument that the desk as a whole was involved, that the head of the desk was basically engineering this scheme.
1: The government's investigated this like a mob case. Once they got the data, they started to look for cooperators on lower levels and flipped them. They arrested one of the mid-level traders at an airport in Fort Lauderdale returning from his honeymoon. Is that like a sort of a scare tactic?
3: Definitely. I mean, it's really extraordinary measures that they took, and this signals how serious they are taking these manipulative activities. I think it also reflects the difficulty of establishing manipulation and spoofing. They can always argue that you know these are trades that were made for other reasons. They were not meant to manipulate the marketplace. And the only way you can really establish manipulative intent is by getting testimony of other individuals who may know and have evidence about that intent. Uh, and so it was very important for the government to bring a criminal case that they have this sort of specific evidence. And the only way you can get that is by getting other employees to to flip and to testify. And so they took very aggressive tactics in order to, to achieve that result.
1: Racketeering charges are also part of the government's case against Bill Wang, whose Archegos capital management collapsed last year and cost banks billions of dollars. Is this case instructive for the government's case there?
3: It certainly indicates that it may be difficult for the government to win racketeering charges, but every jury is different. And the fact that the government lost on racketeering in this case does not necessarily mean that they will lose in another case and so you will have to look at each organization on its own facts and look at the very particular way the organization was run you know you could argue with sort of a family fund that maybe the structure of the organization was such so that you might think of it as more like a unified enterprise than a trading desk now on the other hand you could say well it's it's just the same people may have different levels of knowledge of what is potentially illegal activity. So it really is going to depend on the facts.
1: Novak and Smith will be sentenced next year. They each face decades in prison, though probably the sentence will be far less.
3: I think it will be far less than decades. I think I've seen some other convictions of of sentences of around a year. Um, I would suspect maybe it's a bit more than that, but it's hard to say how the judge is going to rule. And the judge is going to look at the severity of the conduct and um, all the circumstances in crafting a sentence.
1: Because in these white-collar cases, you have defendants who don't usually have, you know, any records, any criminal records. So that's always one thing in their favor.
3: That's absolutely right. They may not have criminal records. And, you know, the other... Argument I would make if I was um, on the defense's side is that you know you look who are the victims of the spoofing and you know my understanding is that a lot of the investors who lost money on the other side of these trades were other sophisticated investors, high-frequency trading funds, and so you might argue well there were losses but these were losses that were um, borne by Fairly sophisticated, wealthy parties. And so, could that mitigate the uh, argument for a strong sentence? That could be an argument that the defense counsel will make.
1: Is there still spoofing in the markets?
3: I would guess that there is. You know, one of the problems is defining spoofing can be difficult. And there's a lot of activity that may go up to the brink of spoofing, but not actually be spoofing. It really requires placing orders in a market with the intent to cancel them, and you're only placing the order to manipulate the market price in your favor for other transactions. And so what exactly is your intent? I'm sure that there are other transactions that could potentially fit that definition, but may go right up to the edge. Some may go over the edge. Uh, And so, you know, with this conviction, though, that's a strong signal that you should not engage in, in this activity. And I would imagine it's going to have a deterrent effect and reduce spoofing in many different markets.
1: Does electronic trading make it easier to spoof?
3: The speed of the transactions that is enabled by the electronic trading can make it easier to place and cancel orders more quickly. I think that certainly you know, I think a factor in, you know, it does make it easier, I think, to sort of put in a lot of orders and cancel them very quickly. If you are, you know, trying to phone in orders, it may be harder to, you know, make a subsequent phone call to cancel an order, whereas if you have just the ability to cancel it with the click of a mouse, then, you know, I think that makes it easier for somebody to put in a lot of orders and then quickly cancel them right away. This is the
1: highlight of the federal government's crackdown on spoofing in precious metals. How did they do, all in all?
3: I think they did very well. They initially got a settlement from J.P. Morgan, the institution, and they have also gotten a number of convictions, both through plea bargaining and also through jury trials. I think there are around 10 individuals who have pleaded guilty or been convicted. And You know, this is not just a case where they found the misconduct and they penalized J.P. Morgan, the corporation. There are a lot of commentators, scholars who have criticized federal prosecutors for not bringing the individual cases, not bringing cases against individuals for corporate wrongdoing. And this is a nice example where the government did bring cases against individuals and worked very hard to do so. And they've been successful in holding individuals accountable for corporate wrongdoing. It's not just a case that JP Morgan is paying a $900 million fine and agreeing to various reforms. You are actually punishing the individuals who have committed wrongdoing. And that is, a more powerful deterrent than if you are just punishing a corporation that pays a large fine. So I think the government did very well in these cases.
1: The Commodity Futures Trading Commission had multiple investigations, but they closed them after finding no evidence of wrongdoing. Did they miss something? It's hard to
3: say. I think that, you know, part of the reality of these investigations is that these are hard cases to establish, and you have limited authority, you have limited uh, resources, and those resources might be better off spent on other types of wrongdoing. And so, you know, is it possible they missed something and missed some individuals? Yes, absolutely. But I think that, you know, you have to prioritize and essentially winning convictions against the head trader of you know, the one one of the larger banks in this space. And I think that's a good use of your resources.
1: They're going to appeal. Did any appellate issues stand out to you? I didn't see
3: anything that stood out to me as a legal issue. You know, they won the convictions on the more straightforward fraud and spoofing claims and manipulation claims as opposed to the racketeering charges. And that might in, in effect, the fact that they lost the racketeering charges may make the possibility that they will survive appeal more likely. Because if they had also won conviction on racketeering, then there could be some legal issues as to whether this is really racketeering. But you know, because the convictions were on more straightforward charges, it might be that the government's case on appeal will be stronger.
1: Thanks so much for coming on the show, Jim. That's Professor James Park of UCLA Law School. His latest book is The Valuation Treadmill, How Securities Fraud Threatens the Integrity of Public Companies. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com podcast law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.
0: The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th.